Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. I recall in 1979, uh, our first child dedication, it was our oldest son, Chris, <clears throat> and uh, it was a, it was a mom- momentous time in my life because it was having my son which caused me that the Lord used to to get a hold of my heart and realize that if he was going to make it, I would have to change. And, and so it was a big deal. And just as King Herod went looking for the Christ child to destroy him, so too there's an ongoing war for the souls of our children. That's what this whole fight is about. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of the air, and we must understand that. And God has given us supernatural weapons with which to war. In 2 Corinthians 10, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. One such spiritual weapon is prophecy. One evening in 1982, um, while living in St. Jacob's, Ontario, which is just on the outside of of, uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, Fran did a, uh, conducted a pregnancy test at home and announced that she was pregnant with our fourth. I was worried because we had three kids. I was attending uh, school at the time. I was retraining, and I had been laid off of work due to the high interest rates. And that evening, so that evening, Fran stayed up uh, as I went to bed because she wanted to hear from the Lord. She's saying, Lord, this, this is going to make things more difficult. What do you have to say about all this? And then God revealed to her that she would have a boy, that we would have a boy who would influence many for the Lord. But when he walked away from the Lord in his teens, this prophecy looked doubtful. But then early Sunday morning, June the 23rd, 2002, that's our wedding anniversary, a week after Father's Day, I was going to be preaching in a few hours, and I was reading the story of how Elisha, in 2 Kings chapter 4, prophesied that the woman of Shunem, where he would often stay, would have a son. You remember the story. But suddenly one day, the son died, and the woman rushed to tell Elisha. She asked Elisha what the point of having the son was, if she would lose him anyways. Like, what's the point? Why do you give me a son? if I'm going to lose him anyway. So Elisha prayed and called the boy back to life. Now, as I read the story, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said that in the same way he had promised, he he had promised Fran that we were to have a, a son of promise, and now Fran was feeling like, what was the point? If we're going to lose him anyway. It's funny that Tom was alluding to some of this. Fran's son was also spiritually dead and dead to the family in many ways. The Holy Spirit told me to tell Fran, my wife, that he would be brought brought back to life just as the biblical woman's son had been brought back to life. I called Fran from the office. This was in the old building on Highway 12. And I said, I'd like to take you out to Smitty's for our anniversary breakfast before I have to preach in the services. <laughs> and she was surprised. I've only done that one time in my life. Uh, I don't do that on Sunday mornings. But I did it that Sunday morning. It was our anniversary. 
And at the breakfast, I shared God's promise with her, that prophetic word that he had given me. She was so overcome with joy and emotion as we sat at Smitty's. She just wept and wept. This happened two years before the Lord brought Stephen back to life. It was a prophecy. Now, New Testament prophecy was inaugurated at Pentecost. And when you read it in the, in the New Testament, you can't believe how excited they were about it, unlike <coughs> what I see in much of the West today. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, it says, In the last days, and uh, the, this is after the Holy Spirit came on them, and they were speaking these different languages from, from the diaspora, who, uh, Jewish people who had come back for the, for the, for the Feast of Pentecost. And... Uh, and they were declaring what was going on, and Peter was trying to explain to the people who were wondering what was going on about this big event at Pentecost, and then he quotes Joel, and that's what we're, we're really quoting here, what's written in Acts. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall, what's the word? Prophesy. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall what? Prophesy. Prophesy. And it will just, and, and so that is the beginning. It's like two bookends. The New Testament tells us the bookends for common prophecy for all of God's people. New Testament prophecy is what I'm talking about. One of the gifts of the, gifts of the Spirit. But all can prophesy to a certain level or extent. And I won't get into that. And it will disappear. Scriptures also tell us when it will disappear because prophecy won't, isn't eternal. It will disappear when Jesus returns. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And then he goes on to tell us when. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Hey, listen, listen to me very carefully. I'll just stop on that for a second. Prophesy in part. Just because we can prophesy or somebody can prophesy doesn't mean they have the whole picture or understand everything. They don't. It's a prophecy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, when they had mirrors, that was on, like maybe on, on a piece of steel or something that was polished. So you can imagine that they were seeing it dimly. But then face to face, when do we see him face to face? When Jesus returns. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And that's why when he comes back, we don't need prophecy anymore. We don't need additional things. We're going to see him face to face. We'll be with him. We'll know fully. Uh, we'll see things clearly. I don't mean we'll know everything. That's not what he's saying. But what we do see, we'll understand correctly. The Apostle Paul valued prophecy. So there's the bookends. And the Apostle Paul valued prophecy. He really did. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 and 5, it says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Right there we can preach a whole message on the church in the West needing the spiritual gifts, all of them. But notice what he says, especially that you may, what? Prophesy. Also in verse 5 and verse 39. In fact, Paul warned the Thessalonian church against prophesy 
despising prophecy, as many churches in the West have done today. 1 Thessalonians 5.20 says, do not despise prophecies. So why did the Apostle Paul value the gift of prophecy so highly? We're only going to have time to look at a couple of its purposes and some of its value for the sake of time. The first one is for edification. It's a primary one. Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 14, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people. He's contrasting it with tongues because tongues is speaking to God in praise. And prophecy is taking words from, or things from God and, and giving them to the people. It goes in the reverse. And he says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their, what? Upbuilding. Up What's the next one? And what's the third? Consolation. That is the primary purpose for New Testament prophecy. Not the only one, but it is a primary one. Building up, not tearing down. Did you get that? Church, did you get that? Yes. Building up, not what? Tearing down. Tearing down. Why is this so important? In the spiritual battles we're fighting, there will be many reasons for discouragement. You're going to be afraid and you'll want to quit if that hasn't already happened to you. And, uh, I, you know, I'm thinking back to the fir very first Bible study that I conducted in a church. I've been in, in uh, vocational ministry now as a, as a pastor for 29 years. And I remember the very first Bible study. I think my wife remembers that one too. Uh, it was in our home that we were renting. And uh, I, I was just teaching something pretty safe out of the book of Acts. Nothing, none. It was just, it was just interesting. You know, I think uh, Paul was getting let over a basket, in a basket over the wall, and I called him a basket case. You know, I was just, we were just having a good time. But there was a guy by the name of Roy... And every statement I made, he challenged openly. Like, every single one of them. Like, I could, I'd say one sentence, and then he would challenge it. I'd say another sentence, and he would challenge it. Finally, I just closed the, I took my Bible, and I just put it underneath my seat. And I said, let's pray. And that was the end of the meeting. It was an abbreviated meeting. And I went out to pray after that, and I said, God, I'm so discouraged. Is this what I signed up for? Is this what it's going to be like? Um, we get discouraged along the way. Would you agree? And it is true that we are to encourage one another. First Thessalonians 4, 18 and 5 verse 11 says, Encourage what? One another. Uh, we used to have an elder on our board. His name is Bob Brandt. He's still, uh, him and Linda are part of the church for many, many, many years. And uh, anytime he would drop me off, as I was getting out of the vehicle, he would always say, Dirk, Dirk said, keep your chin up. That's what he'd say. It was a way of encouraging me. That's how rednecks say it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not from that town. But when you are going through the dark night of the soul, sometimes you just need to know that God knows and cares too. Amen? Amen. Yes, you need the, we need the encouragement of each other. Absolutely. But there are some times when you're going through such a difficult time, you wonder if God actually knows. And you need to hear Him. And it's almost like anything anybody else is saying is not getting through. 
not just propositionally, but relationally, in real time. And God lets you know. Here's the issue. God is continually speaking to our minds. But sometimes, or perhaps often, we reject those thoughts as our thoughts. Many people tell me that. They feel that way. Thinking they're just simply their own thoughts or wishful thinking. And that's what makes dreams and visions, mental pictures, visions, so powerful. You can't make them up. You either had the dream or you didn't. And prophecy packs the same kind of punch. When it comes from God through another, it gives you hope to keep on going. Amen? You realize that God cares, that he hasn't forgotten, that he knows, and that he's with you now in real time, and you have hope once again. Faith, hope, and love. I checked back in my devotional journal and discovered, <laughs> I just went, and uh, I went back one and a half years, and then I did a search. I just wrote the word picture, and it came up 221 times in a year and a half. And I started just going through a few of them. And they were pictures that my wife or Grace Fast or the prayer team or people in the church or otherwise have sent me in a year and a half. And it came up, no, I didn't count every one, but for the most part, when I have the word picture in there, it means it's a mental, you know, one of those mental pictures of a vision. God speaking through someone else to me. You wonder why I keep on going? Amen? Yeah. We need prophecy. Purpose number two, evangelism, 1 Corinthians 14, 24 to 25. But if all prophecy and an un, uh, if all prophesy, I mean, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and soul falling on his face. He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. It's not only is prophecy have a tremendous purpose in building up and giving you hope so that you carry on, that you don't quit, and you make it to the end, and you finish well. And it's that much more necessary the worse it gets. But secondly, it, has a, it packs a powerful evangelistic punch. And I believe we're going to see this one used this application more and more in the years to come. Because, and I'll tell you the reason why. Time out. <laughs> because truth is being trampled in the streets. People don't believe truth anymore. They don't, they don't even think out there anymore. They don't think propositionally anymore. They don't use logic and rationale anymore. They just gloss right over it. And so God can bypass the intellect and get straight to the heart. Now, I'm not saying the other one isn't important. Oh, I appreciate all these messages, and you are thinkers here. This happened with Jesus. On his journey from Judea to Galilee, Jesus and his disciples came to Sychar, a small town in Samaria, and at noon he rested by a well outside the, the town. And as the, disciples went into the town, uh, as the disciples went into the town to buy the food... Of course, the, we know the Samaritan woman came uh, to the well, and Jesus asked for a drink of water. 
and they got into this conversation about living water and that kind of stuff. And all at once, Jesus interrupts the conversation. He said, would you go get your husband and bring him back? And she said, well, I don't have a husband. And he said, you spoke correctly. You've had five in the past. And uh, I just, uh, in fact, well, I think it's on, the, on, the, on, on there. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Then the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. They came back. She believed, and it says many of them believed as well. Um, there's a story that I read recently, and, and there's a bunch of them, just a growing uh, number of these I'm beginning to see. But in his book, Frequency, Robert Morris tells a personal story. And he, he tells of how one evening he was in a restaurant when a man looking ripped like a bodybuilder, kind of like me, came in with his wife. <laughs> you want to just imagine that by faith. And as soon as they walked in, Morris sensed the Holy Spirit speaking to him about the couple, and he sensed the nudge that he should go and talk with him. And the nudge wouldn't leave, and that was his test, and so he went, and this is how he, so he worked up his nerve, and he went to the table, and this is, this is how he introduced the topic. He said, uh, you know, uh, I'm a really perceptive individual, and I was just wondering, have you ever lifted weights before? <laughs> and uh, they, they just laughed. And uh, then Morris said, well, the real reason I came is because I felt like the Lord told me to tell you something. Do, do you mind if I tell it to you? And they nodded, so Morris motioned to the man and began. He said, in my mind, as I was back there, I saw you as a little boy sitting in an older woman's lap. I think it was your grandmother. You were crying, and she told you the story of Samson. And she said to you, if you live for the Lord, then God will make you as strong as Samson. Then he said this, God wanted me to tell you that he's kept up his end of the deal, but you haven't kept up your end of the deal. Now, you want to be careful when you're dealing with a bodybuilder and saying something like that. <laughs> the man looked up with tears in his eyes and said, I was raised by my grandmother. My mother was a single mom, and she worked all the time. One day I was walking home from school, and these bigger boys threw rocks at me, and one of the rocks hit and cut my head. When I got home, my grandmother held me in her lap, and I was crying. She was a strong believer, so she got out her Bible and read me the story of Samson, and she told me that if I would serve God, God would make me strong like Samson. I prayed, and I told God that's what I wanted. Just a few moments ago, minutes ago, on the way into the restaurant, I told my wife that story for the first time. The reason I told her that is because I have, I have everything I want. I've got money, I have strength, I have some fame, but I'm miserable, and I told her that we need to find our way back to God. Morris then led the two to Christ and brought them to the church the next Sunday. Powerful! I've shared some other stories uh, out, of my, out of my church renewal uh, that are similar. Here's another purpose for prophecy, foretelling the future. Paul was journeying back to Jerusalem, and, 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 and wrote, he stopped at Caesarea and stayed with, the, with Philip the Evangelist, and while there a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And uh, it says, and coming to us, <clears throat> he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. 
When the others present heard the prophecy, they urged Paul not to go. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he could not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Agabus said he received this prophecy from the Holy Spirit. In verses 3 to 4. And later events bear out that what he, what he heard was indeed correct. Wasn't God merciful in preparing Paul's heart, telling him what lay ahead? In this way, when trouble would come instead of blessing, uh, Paul would know that he was in the center of God's will and that God hadn't uh, actually abandoned him. Foretelling the future can, can be for various purposes, like for warning, it can be for confirmation, it can be used for direction, for preparation, and on and on. There's, there's really many applications in the foretelling of the future. And May 19th, 2006, uh, Fran and I were at a conference in Colorado Springs, and Chris and Carolyn Puhatch were there with us, uh, when uh, two different women who are very prophetic, they taught at different sessions, and both of them prophesied at different times in the day, not hearing the other, that um, I was going to one day start up a, some, they called it an apostolic church network, a church network of sorts. That was in 2006. And in fact, the one did it while she was teaching. She was right in the middle of her teaching, and suddenly she stopped and she said, somebody here is going to do this. And then at noon, when it was time to go for lunch, she came to me and privately said, I was talking about you. Is that remarkable? The fact that it came twice from two different people made it more certain, and such prophesies, if truly from God, listen to this, become creative. His words go out and do not return empty. They create what he, what he actually says through somebody. Isaiah 55, verse 11. In um, 2002 to 2004, in that area, Fran and Grace Fast both began sharing prophetic dreams and visions with me about what was coming. It's remarkable how much it looks like what we're facing today. And uh, I won't go, go into that, but one of the things that uh, Grace saw at that point then, she said, the devil's suiting up for battle with us. And then Fran had this, uh, this picture, and it was uh, a storm clouds on the distant horizon. And there were gold nuggets that were floating down the river, and we were retrieving as many of, of them as we could be, while there was still time in preparation for that. Now, whenever they're getting pictures, the clouds are right nearby. Those prophetic words created an urgency in me that never, ever leaves me. In fact, it drives me. It really does. We were in Vancouver uh, last year, and and John and Rain, they always come out for a couple of meetings. And so we were sitting in our, the little apartment where, we, where I work and develop. And um, uh, all at once, uh, Lorraine and John looked at us. And obviously, they had been talking about it. They said, one of the things that seems to mark you is urgency. As long as we've known you, there's an urgency that seems to drive you and your ministry. That's where it came from. Here's another purpose for uh, prophecy, confirmation. Remember what Agabus had promised? 
or prophesied that Paul would be tied up. Agabus's prophecy was actually a co confirmation to Paul, for God had already told him something similar. And, uh, and now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constraint. This is what Paul had already received earlier, and then later it was confirmed by Agabus. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now this would al allow Paul to prepare his team for continuing the work while he was incarcerated. That's one thing it would do. The second thing is it would allow Paul and the team to prepare themselves spiritually for the coming ordeal. Do you see how important these things are? Uh, Fran had, uh, uh, had a couple of dreams just recently. I'm going I'm to pull something just right out of this last week. And uh, it was uh, uh, Tuesday, June the 7th, so uh, the week before. And I was, carrying the garbage, uh, I was carrying the garbage out early in the morning, and uh, then I was going to be leaving, and Fran ran out suddenly. And uh, there was an urgency on her face, and I said, what, what is it? She said, I've been, uh, I've been wrestling with whether I should uh, tell you about this, but I think I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to tell you this. And she shared two identical dreams that she had had that night. And... Uh, and then she wrote it out for me, so I'll read a little bit of it. She said, Ray and I and our kids went to visit someone. This is the dream, okay? Ray and I and our kids went to visit someone. They had a huge house, and I had the sense that we had seen, uh, been there before. When we had been there before, they were renovating, and it had been a real mess. Wood, paint, saws, just a lot of work going on, and we couldn't really sit anywhere and visit. This time, there were renovations being done again, or maybe still. There was still much mess and chaos. This is the second visit now. Again, we couldn't sit down and visit because there was so much going on. Cupboards were being repainted. There was a saw going, cutting wood for something. It was so messy, chaotic, that we felt flustered and upset and left. She says, when I woke up, I asked the Lord if he was trying to say something to me via the dream, or if it was just a dream because she had had it twice in the night. And uh, I had the sense, she writes, that I was to tell Ray that we shouldn't keep redoing what didn't need to be redone. The moment I heard what she said, I know what it means. I mean, I was, I, I was on the driveway, and I said, oh, I know what it means. She said, you do? I said, oh, yeah, I know, exactly, because I've, I've been wrestling with something behind the scenes. She said, well, what is it? I said, well... I'm supposed to be writing and developing more materials, but I've had to, I've had to improve some of these other materials, and, and I don't know when I'm supposed to quit revising them, like the Hearing God, the Set Free, the Empower Ministers, the Prayer Implementation Manual of 180 pages for the, for the pastors and so on. And, and I said, I, and so now I'm wrestling with what I'm supposed to be doing this summer. Should I be going back and reworking a little bit of that, or should I be moving forward? And as soon as I heard those two dreams, it was like, ooh, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me, and I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to leave it alone and move on to, some, uh, on to the next thing. Do you see the value of this thing called prophecy? It's powerful. Here's another purpose, imparting a gift. First Timothy said, uh, Paul said to Timothy, don't neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. 
The calling and gifting from God for Timothy was indicated by God through prophecy and recognized by the church when the council of elders laid, on, laid their hands on, and then they actually communicated certain gifts to him that he didn't have, apparently. There's different ways that God can do it. He can do it sovereignly. He can do it apostolically, as he did here, uh, or prophetically. There's different ways that it can be done. On May the 13th, 2004, Fran and I were in Toronto when we met with this woman, and I've told you some of that story before, so I'm not going to go through it all, but her name is Grace Chen, and she's the daughter of one of the women in Malaysia that was part of that team that had been praying for us for years. I was going to give her about 15 minutes, but in the end, when she began to tell us things, we had never met her before, and when she began to tell us things about ourselves that we knew she had no way of knowing, uh, we invited her into our room, and the meeting started at 10, and she left at 2.30 in the afternoon. Four and a half hours. She laid hands on us, prophesied, and prayed over us. She was in a time of fasting at the time. And one of the things she, uh, pray, <laughs> she was praying over Fran was to, for the ability to pray in tongues. And as we were praying there, <laughs> the two of us in, in, in the room there, all at once, Fran, here I hear Fran praying in tongues. And I went, I just stopped and I looked and I went, wow, this is amazing. Then she began to prophesy over her and laid hands on her and said, you, you are going to prophesy and you're going to prophesy much. Ray's going to require that he has somebody with that's going to prophesy much. She, she just went on and on. Fran never did that. Ever. And now it's just a steady stream. That's what it can do, the power of the prophetic when we're using it as spiritual weapons as the, as the days darken. We'll need these more. And it's important. It's creative. And if you can't prophesy, pray for it. Because Paul said you can desire it. You can pray for it. And, uh, and ask for others to prophesy it over you. Well, there's a flip side to this whole thing. Uh, you and I need to prophesy, and I can't stay there any further. I've got to get to the flip side here just for a few minutes. Uh, we need to be able to prophesy to one another and to receive it and understand it if we're going to, if God's going to be able to guide us during these, um, these days. But on the flip side, the enemy will fight us back through false prophecies. See, that's how he does it. On the one hand, he fights you in, in saying, don't desire the gifts because, uh, because if we don't have them, we can't work in the supernatural. I mean, can you imagine if um, Joseph and Mary hadn't received a, a dream, they wouldn't have fled and Jesus would have died as a baby. Is it true? That's what we're talking about. This is spiritual battle going on. And to maneuver... We have to be able to do this. But then in the moment we can start to do it, then Satan comes up with a different plan and he introduces false prophecies. So we have to understand what's a true prophecy and what is a false one. And so we have to test it. First Thessalonians 5 says, Do not despise prophecies, but now look at what it says. But what? Test everything and hang on to what is good. Hold fast what is good. 
It appears the Thessalonians had been despising prophecy because of questionable prophecies given by people. But Paul exhorts them not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. He tells them instead to simply test the prophecies. He said the same of, to the church at Corinth. He said, let two or three prophets speak and let the others, what? Weigh what is said. Say it with me, church. What? Weigh what is said. The Christian faith isn't gullibility. And so on the one side, we see, we see the church reject prophecy outright, and now they can't work in the supernatural, and so they really never create, you know, do anything that advances the kingdom, because you can't just do it through your own strength. But then you got the flip side, which starts to act crazy on the other side, because they're gullible. And they don't test what is supposed to be tested. We are to judge prophecies. Could go into a long talk about judging. We are to test them. First John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but what? Help me. Test the spirits. Say it again. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Did you read that? For many false prophets have gone into the world. So how do we... How can we test? Well, here's a few tests. <laughs> we don't have time for everything again, but here's a few. First one is the doctrine test. And John gives us an example of a doctrinal test. In 1 John 4, 2 to 3, he says, by, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So there's one test. A Christological one. If, he, if the prophet denies Christ, you know he's not, he's not a true prophet. But that's not the only doctrinal test. All Scripture is God-breathed. And because God doesn't change, Malachi 3.6, and because he cannot contradict himself, 2 Timothy 2.13, any prophecy that contradicts Scripture cannot be of God. The Bible, then, is the first test through which a subjective prophecy must pass. Let's go to, we've talked about that one before, so let's, let's go to test number two. I call it the tone test. 1 Corinthians 14, 3-4 again, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. That is tone. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So what's the tone like? If the voice speaking to you makes you feel hopeless, that's not God. Did you get that? Angry, critical, tearing down kinds of prophecies did not come from God. They didn't. His voice brings hope, not despair. Now, that's not to say that God won't tell one of his children that they may be close to death, for example. He told the Apostle Paul the time for his departure had come. But the words produced joy and peace in Paul, not hopelessness and terror. He was excited about it. God reserves his terrifying words for those in rebellion against him. And I was reading Psalm 2 this morning. If you know what Psalm 2 talks about, you'll want to read it. Yeah. He speaks encouraging words to his weak and immature children who may be stumbling, but who are stumbling towards him. Amen? Amen. 
church. Amen? Yes. And these kind of people that come into churches and they start acting like they're Old Testament prophets or something? Well, we'll get to that. What you can do with them. When Jesus spoke to his followers, he didn't condemn or nag or whine. His voice is calm, quiet, and authoritative. Even his warnings and rebukes bring hope. Has he ever rebuked any of you? He's rebuked me. And when he did it, he did it so lovingly, I couldn't believe it. It brings hope, not despair. James 3 says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. The voice of the devil does just the opposite. He accuses and condemns us in order to steal our hope and our faith and our joy. In Revelation 12, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Praise God, one day that's going to happen. Enough's enough. The devil's voice has a different character or tone to it. Test number three, discernment test. Hearing. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10 says, To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another gifts of healing, by that one Spirit, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits. Uh, some are given a particular gift of discernment so they can know by the Spirit what is true or false prophecy, just as some can give interpretation to tongues while others can't. But we do not just have to rely on having some, uh, someone around who is gifted this way. We can ask the Holy Spirit in prayer ourselves. And we can do it together with a group, whether it's our spouse or whether it's our family or whether it's a small group or whatever, our ministries. The Gibeonites heard that what Joshua and the Israelites had done to Jericho and Ai, so they fabricated a ruse. Remember that? Making uh, Joshua and the leaders think that they had come to make a treaty from a distant land when they were in fact nearby neighbors. And scripture includes this pertinent comment on which the whole story hinges. The whole point of the story is this. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. True? The Christian faith isn't gullible. It isn't a stupid faith. We can go back and we can test it. Discernment by listening is important. Here's the last one, fruit test. See what Jesus had to say about this. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious what? Wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will what? Recognize them. Jesus said this. Again, we see that he's calling us to judge or test and not be just gullible. However, I find this particular test of Jesus fascinating. You might have expected that Jesus would use a miracles test to judge by. 
<laughs> you know, if they're doing amazing, unbelievable miracles. Then, <laughs> now you better listen to them. He doesn't. He gives you the fruit test instead. Why is that? Because Satan also can do some miracles. And that's what the second beast of Revelation will be able to do in, in the days ahead. It's going to happen. The second beast performed great miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast. He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. But guess what Satan cannot produce? Righteous fruit. <laughs> it's called catch-22. You've been caught. He is not just a liar. He's the father of lies and of every other wickedness as well. Is it true? There are two kinds of fruit here that we can look at. The first fruit one, the results of his influence in others. After Jesus spent time with Zacchaeus, tax collector who had become wealthy by defrauding people, Zacchaeus restored fourfold what he had taken from the people. Now that's life-transforming fruit. Would you, would you agree? <laughs> that's amazing fruit. That's what was being produced in people around Jesus. They were radically different. Second Corinthians, Paul says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. You should be able to observe such fruit in those who surround the one prophesying, and if not, beware, do not listen to such a prophet. If they're producing nothing or not good people, don't listen to their prophecies. Period. Amen. Amen. But you say, what if God chooses to use such a person to deliver a message? He doesn't. That's the point. That's why he could say this. Test the fruit. Because he doesn't choose those kind. He just said in his word that we would be able to tell it and we can observe it. Here's fruit number two. The life of the prophet himself. The one that's prophesying. A New Testament prophet, number one, doesn't carry the authority that an Old Testament prophet did. Because they didn't write infallible scriptures. New Testament prophets didn't do that. that the Old Testament role of prophets ceased after the Old Testament. Hebrews 1 verse 1 to 2 is very clear on that in the past. God spoke to our forefathers through the what? prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his prophets? No, by his son. And the writing of scripture transferred over to the apostles who listened to what Jesus was, who, who listened to what Jesus was telling them and then explaining even after he left. That function changed Old Testament prophets are not the same as New Testament prophets. So in the uh, New Testament, it was the apostles who were inspired to write Scripture. And the Bible has more authority than present-day personal revelation because its authority extends to all people everywhere at all times. 
And if a prophet thinks he is on par with an Old Testament prophet, don't listen to him. Second, we can observe the fruit of the prophet by the results in others around that we talked about, and we can observe the fruit in the prophet's very own life. Paul uses that very principle when pointing to fruit in his life as to why they should follow him as an apostle, him and Timothy and Silas. He's, he does that in 1 Thessalonians. He says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Notice that? He says, in the next nine verses, Paul named some of this fruit in his and Silas and Timothy's lives and says, take a look. Look at our fruit. I wish I had time to read the whole thing. And here's a sample from those nine verses. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, blameless we were among you who believed. He's, he's listing fruit. He said, take a look at our lives. We're different. You can trust us. That's the kind of fruit you're looking for. Well, I have to wrap it up. <laughs> There's more I wanted to say, but... We need the weapons for spiritual warfare. They are absolutely indispensable, and we're going to need them more in the days to come. And, we'll, uh, and this is what I want to say to the small groups and cells and individuals, of course. You should be practicing this kind of thing in your cells weekly. It doesn't take a whole lot of time. You go around the circle and you say, what's God been saying to you? And then somebody has a decision to make. What is God saying to you for, for them? And you start practicing it. And you should be praying for one another to grow in these gifts. To have these gifts and to grow in these gifts because they're going to be indispensable, indispensable for you. They already are. You just don't realize it. Because you don't really realize what you would be like and what it would be like if you were already operating in them. It's hard for you to imagine. But you have to trust God's word because he said desire them. Does God make useless gifts? Let me ask you that. Uh, many, many years ago, I received, uh, when I used to do the uh, set freeze, I received a hammer from Colette O'Brien. And the, it was a steel hammer, and the head was bent right back. I still have that hammer. And she gave it to me as a gift. And I would use that as an illustration of a useless gift. Is that a useless gift? Yes or no? Well, here's my point. God doesn't give us useless gifts. And for us to despise them, we do it at our own peril. We need these gifts. And we need to desire them because God said we need to desire them. And that's part of <laughs> knowing and obeying the Word of God. That's what it says. I just illustrated what some of the pur purposes of that is. And you should be doing the same in your families. And then you should be asking the Lord to give you opportunity to use them in your ministries and in your workplaces and in your families. And so church, I want to encourage you in this matter. Seek after God in these things. But then don't forget 
when you're receiving prophecies to test them because you are responsible for the prophecies you receive. Amen? I'm going to pray for you right now. Father, thank you for your word. (laughs) Your amazing, amazing word that you've given us. But Lord, your word, the Bible, as a textbook, as as a book here, is nothing compared to you to whom the Bible points. Lord, I pray that you'd place in us now a desire for all the gifts of the Spirit. Not so that we can brag about them, not so we can go around and, and, and act like we've somehow spiritually arrived, but so that we can use them in fighting the powers and principalities of the air. And so that we can know how we can guide our children and our families in these perilous days. And so, Father, put that hunger and desire, which is part of your grace according to Philippians 2.13, and the ability to grow in this matter of prophecy. We'll thank you for what you're going to do and the impact it's going to have here at Southland, but outside our walls as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.